welcome to the first episode of doing being doing today i am super excited and super grateful to introduce all of you to our first ever guest nadia chane i met nadia the first time in way back in 2010 2011 uh, while i was working for a non-profit organization in india and i have to tell all of you that it shaped the rest of my life both personally and professionally in many ways i went on to inherit a lot of things that nadia actually stands for um nadia has been facilitating since 2002 and has facilitated over 2000 international events um and she works in the space of powerful diversity inclusion and participatory practices she has a masters degree in education with a focus on imaginative education and the use of metaphor in group leadership as well as a diploma in dialogue and negotiation along with a study on expressive art therapy nadia has worked extensively with young people with teachers professors artists and facilitators there is a fantastic story that is waiting in this interview if you would like to know more about nadia chane nadia has a website which is called nadiachane.com she is also the founder of a tool platform called toolsy t o l s i so please do check that out right after this interview welcome to the first episode nadia Thank you. I'm so happy. I'm so excited. It's really cool to be the first one. It's a real blessing. Thank you. Yeah. Uh thank you so much for making time to have this conversation. Um So Nadia, maybe you could talk about I don't want to give your LinkedIn profile introduction to everyone. So if you were to spend the next few minutes really telling your story to people and you know, who are you? uh and a little bit more about you know what you do uh so what would that look like what would that sound like sure well um i always start with my mother my facilitation journey really starts with my mother they my my folks are from india but i was born in canada on treaty 6 territory cree territory in the middle of canada in a place called saskatoon saskatchewan but my mom's from goa and my dad's from pune Mm. And they were marrying across cultures. I'm sure you know this. I I I've said this so many times over the years, but it's really like it's such an important aspect of my journey where my father was from a Muslim community, my mother's from a Catholic community, and when they wanted to marry in the 70s, their parents were like, "Okay, but maybe not here. Maybe what would it be like if you raised your children in um North America?" And mm. so they moved to Minnesota and then they moved to Saskatoon and that's where I was born and that was a bit I think of a shock for my mother the culture shock. Hmm. And so her response to a very different kind of community life was to start throwing block parties. Hmm. In order to meet everyone and have the community come together and she throw these incredible parties what had games and and kind of ways to connect and that was really my first experience of facilitation. was being around mm-hmm. my mother doing this cross cultural work. Mm-hmm. And you know fast forward 20 years from then I 
started um, experimenting with what I was hoping would be an arts career and fell into community arts. And so got into spoken word poetry and then thought I invented facilitation. I wonder how many people this happens to. I thought I invented it because I didn't, I'd never heard that word from my mother. And I was like, oh, we were doing poetry workshops and, and poetry performances and stuff like that. And then I was like, I got this opportunity to, to dream up an event, whatever I wanted it to be. And I already knew I loved audiences and really liked the in-between time talking to the audience even more than performing. And that was like my first cue that I liked the group energy, you know. So we started a, a community discussion forum called the Psycho Slideshow. And it was like really edgy. And my whole thing was I thought people needed to get angry in public. And, and so I would like spend the whole week trying to find people on different sides of an argument and then make them argue in front of people. And that was misguided in many ways, but also really powerful. And we did it for a long time. We did it at least every Monday for at least six or eight months. And there was a music aspect and a video aspect. And it was really fun. But there is where I met Rupinder Singh Sidhu. And he invited me to the Power of Hope. And the Power mm -hmm. of Hope Youth Camp. So you see how these things kind of... And so the Power of Hope Youth Camp was where I first encountered community arts. Mm -hmm. And that's where I realized where my arts... My dream of being an artist was going to land. And so I was about 21 years old. And I realized for me, what was really important was that the artist is in, is not on the edge of society for me. There's a real role, important role for, for artists outside also. But for me, it was rather than being on the edge outside, I felt there was a, a central role for the arts and community. And it wasn't my idea. It was, this was Charlie and Peggy, and this is what they were teaching us. And they were so open hearted at that, at the, those early camps. And they were like, take all this material. And then I was with these other young friends and what we did was start thinking, you know, the camps would happen in the summer throughout the year. Then we would be like, well, where else? And so we would work in detention set youth detention in universities and, you know, start festivals and throw and, and just practice a lot. And a lot of it, you know, profoundly unpaid or we're paying, you know, <laughs> but then also, people starting to respond to us and say, well, this is something that really is increasing engagement and really is changing the way the community is able to undertake its own empowerment. And so the, the doors really started to fly open in those early days. And then, um, you know, 10 years later, Power of Hope turned into an international training organization and that's how we met you. Yeah. And that's how Power of Hope, you know, Power of Hope remained and still does remain, but it also transformed into partners for youth empowerment. And that's when I really, I mean, we were training people all along just because you needed more people, mm -hmm. but that's when I really started to understand the psyche of the facilitator that, and the, how to train. And, it, mm -hmm. and those days at dream a dream, um, that was my first time designing a training on my own yeah. and really learning to understand how, what those transformations are and how does it travel without, you know, what they call cascade loss. So, yeah. So I guess that's, I, and then, you know, in March, just before the lockdowns, I left partners for youth empowerment.
after 10 years on the road and realized it was time to turn a corner. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, except that I really wanted to, I had felt the pressure of the NGOs, the restrictions, the constrictions on my own imagination, um, but also on community. And, you know, as wonderful as some of those organizations can be, um, the systemic pressure that they exist within and the political pressures. I wanted to do something different. And so for the last 92 weeks, I've been running uh, a community arts-based research program studying the nature of time. And that is my pet project. It's like the best thing I've ever done. It's called the Time Zone Research Lab. There's only eight weeks left. And um, and that's where I've really learned almost like the opposite of, of the style I was doing at Pi. And it's just rounded out my whole style and given me a whole other dimension of understanding facilitation in a completely different way. For example, slight example, although I know we'll get into this as we go on. But people come to the time zone and sleep. You know what I mean? Wow. But Right? But we, I used to always think of engagement as alertness. But now I realize there's this whole other dimension, which is what is, what is authentic? What is the depth of authenticity? And how does that interact with efficiency? So, and then time zone, it became clear that I wanted to write a book. And in order to write a book, I needed to fund the writing of that book. Because now I know all this stuff about temporality in groups, time, how time operates in groups. And I know that that's a niche that, that isn't, hasn't been really exhausted at all. But I didn't want to write a grant. I didn't want to re-enter the NGO world. So that's where Tulsi came from. And I was like, okay, can Tulsi be the engine that then allows me? Because the time zone was run as a kind of as an offering after everything I received from Pi, kind of a giving back um, and, a, and an experiment. So that, and then that brings us to here today, really. <laughs> Wonderful. There's like so many things that I want to like touch upon uh, in, in the introduction that you gave. And let's actually start with you describing, uh, you know, the time zone lab a little bit more, like why pursue the concept of time? What about it excited you? Uh, and then we'll get to uh, understanding a little bit more about Tulsi, but Help me understand, as a facilitator, what about time uh, fascinated you? And uh, also, what do, you, what do you, you know, if you could describe a little bit about what you did in the Time Zone Lab, I think that would be great. Sure. I mean, the short answer is, you know, time is the medium of transformation. So I wanted, I needed to understand that. I did my master's work on metaphor in groups and the transformations of meaning that happen. So there was always this bracket in that research. Well, what about time? How is time operating? So it, it was there, but if I look back, I can even find the roots of my curiosity about time long before in, you know, in my early teens. So I've always had this, you know, that, that question that's just tapping on your head. I had that and as I, especially in the training context, there are so many important questions about time. And, and oftentimes is the thing we're working against in facilitation. And I wanted to know, my main questions with the time zone research lab were one, 
how can we be more intimate with time? And then two, is time incarcerated? And if so, how can we help to liberate it? And so these were the guys. So now you can see the connection with facilitation that really it's a question of um, at the heart of it is everything living in our whole ecology of facilitation so that it's not just the human, it's also the place. And we, and we talk a lot about place and acknowledging land, but then there was this hidden aspect. And I'm always so interested, even in a group dynamic, what are those hidden aspects? What are those quiet voices? And, and time is like the quietest, but in many ways, the most important, the most prominent and the most consistent. And so when we talk about the arc of design, for example, that's a question of temporality. You know, uh, when we talk about transformation, when we talk about just showing up, what does it mean to show up? What does it mean to be present? Present is an aspect of time. Actually, holding space is actually an aspect of time, not space. So, you know, you don't hold the, you don't hold the physical space, you hold the time. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's beautiful, right? Like uh, we don't hold a physical space; we we actually hold hold space. It's a it's almost like a parallel universe, a world that we've all reached mentally, and we're you know we're holding space, which is a very very important role of a facilitator. So that's that's amazing. Um, was there anything else that you were going to add on? I didn't mean to interrupt. You. No, no, and that's fine. I tangents are great. Well, I guess I would just describe a little bit about the time zone if you, if you want. Um, it is multidimensional. It's got people from the age of three to 75. Um, it is, it has two main, um, meetings. One is on Wednesday. One is on Sunday. On Sunday, it's more for young people, but there are adults who are there. And that is co-storytelling. It's imaginative adventuring through the cosmos, through dimensions, learning about time by storytelling and drawing. And that research has been very, very important for me. And then the other is in, on Wednesdays, we meet 9 a.m. my time, which is Montreal. And it used to go until 2 a.m. But now lately we go until about 4 p.m. I was burning out. So we, it's more like till 4 p.m. And we, re, we, we have two hours where we start in the morning where it's called mending the web. And we really do nothing. We, we just spend two hours connecting. The whole thing is a drop-in also. And drop-in facilitation, drop-in community groups have always been my favorite. That ultimate informality and also like there's just so much that becomes possible when people have that freedom. Uh, so I've always, I love the, the whole notion. So this is a drop-in and it afforded us incredible things to have it that way, which is one, many more people can join. And it works across time zones because of that. But also it forces us to engage the newcomer never as late, but always as perfectly on time. And so whenever they show up, we recap what has happened, which gets, brings us, locks us into the present and, and, and welcomes them with whatever they come with. So every time someone new comes, they, they alter the shape of the space. 
Um, so that's kind of, and then, and then after those two hours, then we read and we read really like deep academic texts from anthropology to physics, to biology, um, to, to the arts, you know, and every, every week it's a different text. I have made an audio recording of it already. And then people receive the audio recording, but they don't have to have read it to come to the session. Mm -hmm. And the intent of the session is never to grasp or own the reading or to even understand the reading. The intent of the reading is to gather our stories along a certain vector. So any interruption, and so this interruption is also an aspect of time. And I'm very interested in interruption as, as part of group dynamics, because it often gets suppressed. Right. And we're like, don't interrupt, don't interrupt. How do we do Right. But instead I'm really interested in how do we weave interruptions into a group space so that we get to a higher level of attunement and intuition. So you're still listening, but you're able to interrupt and still stay connected. Often interruption breaks the connection. So we were working on this and then it's like, even the thing you don't know why you're going to say it, if it comes to you and it feels important, then you say it. And, and that we found has really woven the readings together and often predicted re readings. Cause I don't pre-plan them every week. I, I get this intuitive hit. What's the next reading? Mm -hmm. So then we read and then we make art and there's been so much making. We have puppet, we've had many, many puppet shows and we have a, 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 every season we have a session called Chronophoria, which this wonderful, amazing friend of mine, Jarrett Martineau, makes a seven-hour playlist, a hundred-song playlist, and we listen to the entire thing on the Wednesday. And everybody dances and sleeps and eats, and we just listen together for that long. And he's making novels out of songs out of linking songs in these huge playlists, they make these kind of novelistic ideas about time. So that's kind of how it works. Now, then and there's just one other, one other aspect, which is the newsletter. So throughout the week, there's, old, there's 325 people right now on the time zone list, and they can't all come on Wednesday. I mean, it's the middle of the work week. <laughs> so those people are calling me and texting me and writing to me and Instagramming me all week. And I collect all of that into a newsletter and that goes out the night before. So tomorrow I'll spend the day writing it. And we say our main teachers, I have a hundred year old sourdough starter and I have a ceramic octopus and the two of them are really, and the ceramic octopus is like this container. There's also like a real question with the time zone that we're working with. And I, for me, this is very important to NGO culture and, and what I was trying to push back on, um, where we're trying to delink time and value. So people, rather than paying to be at the time zone, there's like a, there was, it's not, we don't have it anymore, but there was a nominal cost, which was like 25 cents a session. Um, but what we're actually asking for people to do is pay forward in their communities. And the idea being that that would generate abundance and it really has. And trying to ask ourselves, can our study, our act of study, benefit our communities rather than the act of study being an act of taking from communities? You know, so anyway, there, you can see I could talk about this for the next hour. 
<laughs> so maybe I'll leave it there for now, but it's been, it's really been the project of a lifetime. Yeah, and I could listen to this for another hour, you know. Uh, so there are a couple of things that uh, really stood out for me. Uh, one is, Nadia, where you spoke about the relationship, this, this whole idea of a drop-in community, which is you can just drop in at any point. And when you were trying to describe that, I actually thought about it and how would I respond to that as a facilitator because I am, as an individual, so um, you know, methodical and process-driven and you know, uh, uh, obsessively structured. And it's interesting that you say, and I found it so profound and so beautiful when you said that at whatever time a person decides to show up, it is, it is the right time. Uh, and uh, in a very parallel world, um, I heard something very similar with an organization called Play for Peace. Uh, and they actually write at the beginning of all of their workshops, you know, on a, on a whiteboard, right at the entrance. Everyone is invited. Uh, everybody wins. Whoever is here is the right person. So, you know, you don't have to wonder, am, am I supposed to be here? You know, is this the right place to me? So I found it very interesting that, uh, and, and also so liberating, right? It gives you a sense of relief that, uh, you know, like, phew, you know, I, uh, this whole idea of being somewhere at the right time, uh, I think it it's, uh, means so many things, uh, even in our everyday life, not just in the concept of facilitation, right? Um, it's a, such, a, such a gentler, compassionate, uh, loving way to respond to someone I, I found that amazing. So that leads me to another question that I often feel that as our facilitation practice it reflects so much about who we are in that point in time, right? Uh, so like, like I was telling you that as a, as a facilitator, I have my notes and, you know, uh, and I'm like following everything to the T. I also uh, sometimes in my past when, you know, in, in my earlier days, I used to look at uh, something that did not happen the way I wanted to happen as an as a interruption or as a mistake that needs to be fixed. Uh, it is it has taken me about you know a decade to reach a place where I think of what is happening, what is unfolding in front of me as an opportunity, as a possibility for something. It could be a possibility for learning. It could be a possibility for a conversation. It could be possibility for an insight. It could be a possibility for a whole new relationship between even the facilitator and, you know, their, their group or their audience. So fascinating stuff. Drop in community. I'm making that uh, definitely one part of the headline. So I want to ask you this question, Nadia. Well, do you not have, for us, drop in community centers are a thing, like, Right. So like after school drop in is a is a thing where where you so like I, that's where I cut my teeth in many ways. And in, it's the most challenging, but the young people remember it for life. Right. It, to have a safe space, a refuge what's their own. And so and for me, after school has always been my favorite zone of a temporal zone of facilitating is after, you know, they've gone to school, they've been under this control. Mm-hmm. And then there's the drop-in center, mm-hmm. and then and who are those adults, and how do they act, and what does it mean? And 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 they're not. It's not perfect, right? You can have drop-in centers at the YMCA where the 
the, the, you, you maintain a very distant relationship or sometimes at the Y, that's not fair to, to name the Y in that way. Sometimes the YMCA is the place of incredible community building. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different everywhere. But um, yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, draw, I didn't invent the idea of drop-in <laughs> in the mm-hmm. sense that, but using it in a very form, this is high level, like education setting, right? So how to, that was my big innovation in this sense was how do I do drop-in when we're studying? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes sure. sometimes the study can take over the, mm-hmm. and become the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the lives of the people doing this study and their community. Because most often you're late because of your community responsibilities, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I would say, or, or whatever, like including like maybe you're just engaged in a different activity. Or your mm-hmm. mind has a different temporal, temporal mm-hmm. setting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to, st- I just wanted to say that before your next question. Absolutely. In fact, when I heard uh, the idea of dropping community, I didn't necessarily take that as a design frame. I actually saw that as a value, as a lived value. You know? Yes. Uh, and yes. I found that so interesting about it. Um, so. Yes. You know, the, the point of that conversation where we were discussing that how so much of who you are is also how you facilitate or you get attracted to certain facilitation practices, right? So uh, if you ask me as Shalini Menon, I, I am attracted towards anything which is very methodical, very structured, um, you know, uh, with very limited ambiguity. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people often ask me that, how is it that, uh, you know, your session says will end at 4 p.m. and you always end it at 3.55 p.m. Like, how does that happen? I don't know how that happens. Uh, I think I've just like trained my brain to, uh, you know, uh, learn that. I, with this conversation, I'm definitely also going to experiment and see what does it mean for me to unlearn that. I mean, I think you've named how it happens because you're <laughs> very, if you're very methodical and structured, then time will respond to you in this way. Ah, interesting. <laughs> you know? So you, you know when you're off track and you adjust, you're probably adjusting in the moment mm-hmm. with, oh, yeah. the, with where that end point is in mind. We always used to joke at camp that the only thing we really needed to make sure to do was get everybody on the bus at the end. You know, <laughs> like that that moment, it doesn't matter how much time gets shifty. We can't be late for that, you know, that moment. And so I wonder if in your, you know, from, if you're going from nine to four, that Mm -hmm. where that four is, is a very much a shaping influence for you throughout, Mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting, you know, and now that you see it, I'm able to trace it back to my early stage career, which actually started on adventure camps where a large part of the work was so dependent on sunlight or the lack of sunlight. Right. Uh, so I learned, right, I learned to work in synergy with that light, that external light that guided all activities of a camp in an adventure or wilderness setting. And then I got wired for that. And even today, I could be in a hotel room, uh, you know, with uh, with uh, all, all uh, you know, pretty much a chandelier right on top of my head. And yet I'm wired to do that. So I think in many ways, I got wired to look at time through the sense of the sunlight available or not available and therefore safety of kids. But much later in my career, I moved into, you know, halls, workshop halls and 
hotel halls and 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 they could be a chandelier blinking bright on top of my head right but but i'm so wired to look at time as uh, you know uh, and like you said resource. a resource that that will run out yes. exactly yeah. exactly right uh, so so interesting that uh, i never th- i never thought that this conversation will be so related to your time zone work and thank you for bringing in that dimension um speaking of time and speaking of lifetime right uh i'm again very curious about this thing that i was talking about earlier that in many ways our facilitation is who we are and who we are becomes our facilitation um yeah. that's one part of it and the second thing is all of us are you know very uh, innately attracted to certain ways of facilitation also because of who we are in at the outset somewhere you spoke about how uh there was a time when you thought that you invented facilitation <laughs> i i would love us to go back in time because you know when you said that i was like ha huh, maybe i did too so <laughs> <laughs> and and my sense is a lot of people will resonate with that i want us to go back to that moment where you f- felt that you invented facilitation unpack that a little bit for us sure um <laughs> well what happened was my friend ali nagibi had he had this brainwave so they were doing a slam at this place called the cafe de soleil on Van- in vancouver on commercial drive and it was overflowing and he was like a real thinker and he said uh you know those somebody should scoop up those people <laughs> you know they've come out and they can't get into the venue is full. Mm. So what are we going to do with those people? He said, "Nadia, do you want to run a poetry night a few doors down so that the wow. people who can't get in there, they'll come to us?" And I said, "Well, we could, but why compete with the big slam?" Instead, and that didn't feel it didn't feel right. It felt like the seed of a good idea, but not really You know, there's not that that doesn't quite have the integrity that even at that young age, I was probably just 19, 20 at this point, it needed to resonate. and that idea didn't quite resonate it felt like it would be competing with a really amazing arts pro- uh, center that i was also part of you know so instead i was like well instead of a poetry thing what if we did a community discussion forum and i swear i'd never put those words together nor heard them together in my life and so i thought community discussion forum <laughs> i was like this is such a <laughs> It's so embarrassing looking back knowing like becoming who I am now but realizing that my future was calling me. You know and that the this self and my and my old self if there's going to be one were calling that young person forward, you know? And so it's it, oh there's a part of me that's like how could I have been so naive? And then there's another part that was like I had to have that thought to get me to here. And so I thought it was like yeah, I really was like what if people were allowed to express their real emotions about the issues that affect them that's what i was like that's what it was and it was mm-hmm. like can we stimulate their senses we put up six video screens and we played really heavy drum and bass music and we were like can we agitate them to get the frustration out and and my hero was Jerry Springer this is the extent to which i had never seen a facilitator or in retrospect my some of my teachers were facilitating me 
mm-hmm. and especially in martial arts and things like that. Mm-hmm. But no one was, it just hadn't codified in my mind that this was a practice. I always mm-hmm. had the practice of facilitation related to the content. So this was my martial arts instructor. This was my music teacher, right? So I thought, okay, I would only think, oh, your music. I didn't know there was a broader skill set that had to do with the group dynamic. Mm-hmm. But here I wanted to suddenly tap the group dynamic for a social reason. And that's why I thought I had invented facilitation. And I saw these talk show hosts like Jerry Springer doing that, playing the group dynamic between the audience and the panel. And mm-hmm. I, was, I was very interested in that activity Mm. and he in particular would stimulate anger Mm. and I was and I just I think at 19 I was very angry and and I and I I didn't it wasn't that I needed a group to voice my anger I would hold it and read a poem and you know it wasn't that I needed to voice my anger it's that I believed everybody had this inside of them and it was really cool what ended up happening was that you know people would come for their issue let's say we were talking about animal rights the animal rights people would come, but they would like the form, the frame. Mm-hmm. And so then they would come back, and now the animal rights people were talking about the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it became, and that's, I learned a lot of early lessons about um, stance and how people mm-hmm. lock themselves into location and what will shift them in those. I mean, I learned a lot at the Psycho Slide Show because, it, like you say, it was a first experience. And it reframed the previous experiences I'd had. Um, And this is something that I'm really interested in is how the first of something isn't chronological or spectral. It's when you have the insight and and what will reorganize your past and future is the first, you know? Wow. That is so amazing. First, not in a chronological linear fashion, but the first is a moment of insight or reflection or a aha moment, which reorganizes your past or future. Wow, that is so powerful. Um, and you know, as you were describing this, one of the questions that I am uh, asking all the guests is, what is facilitation in your own language, right? And interestingly that, you know, you already gave that answer, but I'm going to still give you a chance to do that in your own language. But I want to go back and underline the moment where you said facilitation, uh, you know, uh, you of course said it in a different way that if you're able to create a space for people where they can uh, express their real emotions on an issue, that is perhaps facilitation. So I want you to build on this definition of facilitation a little bit more. How would Nadia Chene define facilitation? I've defined it so many different ways in so many different contexts over the years. I think I can only speak for this moment. And I would say the facilitator is the one who reads the field first. Right? So it's, it's all, it's not just the emotional field. It's also the psychic, the intellectual, the physical, i.e. the somatic, um, the temporal, but it's the, it's the facilitator who prioritizes the field. Not that everybody else isn't also reading it. And then intentionally is interacting with the field of the group. That's, I, th- I think that that's the role 
as I understand it. Awesome. And you know, that in many ways answers or why I, I, I re- deeply resonate with this is sometimes people, you know, in a workshop, let's say it gets over or you're just done for the day or you just announce a break. They'll come to, you know, I'm sure this has happened to you too. Um, so they come to me and they'll ask, how did you decide what question you're going to ask next? Or uh, on the agenda, we saw something else. But as the event of the day unfolded, you actually just did something completely different, which was not on paper. And I've had such a hard time trying to describe to people, like, how did I decide, how did I do that, right? Because maybe I'm just making observations so rapidly around me, people's energy, the room's vibe, people looking at each other. And, you know, I'm reading something in the room so rapidly that even I don't know I'm making an observation or like you said, reading the field. Uh, How does one get to that? How does one get to a place like that as a facilitator? As a trainer, this has been a really important question. Um, You know, some people have the, the gift for it. That's what they are attuned to. So if they spend their time in school, they're already attuning to that. So you can then just peel the cover off that. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was, I did a podcast with my friend Emily Claire just yesterday. And this is, you know, this is something that I think she, she just has that gift, right? But you can train for it, which is to train the list. It's to train simultaneous listening. So you pull it apart, right? And you're like, okay, can you listen for facts? Can you listen for emotions? Can you listen for the body? Can you listen for the, the hopes, right? Break it down. So that people see themselves and see their own resistances and their, and their tendencies, not just resistance, but also their gift and their tendency and their habit, and then start relayering them. And then you can train, you can train people to, to, cause what you're talking about is like, it's a profound receptivity, but without, it's an active receptivity. So what I, my friend Warren Hooley said this to me years ago, and I just, it, it put the nail on the head so perfectly. The, ha- the hammer on the nail? Anyway, it hit the nail on the head. It hit the nail on the head. Um, where he said, you know, watch it land. You know, when you say something, you watch it land. And that, I was like, oh, that's exactly it. It's like my receptive tool. So I'm ultra open from the heart, the mind, the body. I'm like really receiving the whole group, which is why the work can be so exhausting and why, you know, the, the rest is so important. And I feel no one really trained me for that. Mm. That way, when you open, how do you recover? Mm-hmm. But so I'm super open. And then I'm sending these little pings, which is every word I say, every gesture I make, I ping it out into the group. And it's also, they're all doing it too. And then you watch that come back. It's like you watch it land. And how does it come back? And that action is a very complex action if you were trying to do it in the mind. But the heart, I believe, is really built for this. And this is what Charlie Murphy used to say, that facilitation is the journey from the mind to the heart and back. Right? So if I think of the heart as this receptive tool or this like, it's more like to me like an area and this very receptive area of myself that's not just located in the chest, of course, but the heart you know, that then my intellect will send something and it pings 
back and it comes back as information and then the heart sends it back to the mind. And that this cycle and that the and to trust that everyone is going through that cycle in a different way. And this is how we're connecting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's in the cycle of mind and heart. And, and then, you know, we can, compl- we can make that much more complex by talking about the body and the invisible world, <laughs> you know, and intuition, right? And the ancestors and, you know, however, mm-hmm. however, first of all, you frame that, but also what is engendered in different mm-hmm. group spaces. I'm sure that you noticed in outdoor work, the land mm-hmm. speaks loudly and is such a co-facilitator, whereas in a hotel, that voice is muted but other voices come through from the containment, from the residentiality, you know, you get other kinds of voices. So, you know, I would say that those two are also op- the body and the invisible world are also operating in this, but this act of presence. And it's like over the years. And as you said, you know, I'm still learning and I'll learn. And Charlie was still learning when he passed, you know, and, uh, and so, and so is Peggy and, and all of these things, you know, the list of mentors and watching them learn and change their practice over the years. Um, and, it, and I think the reason is because it is an incredibly complex art that can be done very simply. So I've seen children facilitate young, like, in a, you know, young children facilitate in extraordinary ways and, and their heart is already so open. It's not like experience makes you better. Sometimes it can lock you into your habits and a terrible, you know, and then you're like five years later, you're like, God, I've been doing that for so long. <laughs> but it's that it is, it's both highly complex and does not require us to engage the complexity at an intellectual level. So we can just like, it's more like how a forest is complex than how like a philosophy text is complex. You know, <laughs> the complexity of the forest is part of its simplicity. I don't know if that makes sense, but it does. It does. And you know that, so I'm going to turn the, that question around a little bit and ask you, just like how a facilitator is somebody who reads the field first, the room is also reading the facilitator. So much. <laughs> um, for better or worse. Means, exactly, <laughs> right? Which means the energy, the vibe, the mood that we carry, uh, all of it is coming with us, whether we like it or not. And the group gets to pick that up too. So do you have a story for us there? Do, have you ever been in a situation like that where you had to engage with maybe one person in, in, in the group or maybe the entire group in a way where... Uh, the room was reading you as much as you were reading the room. I'm just curious about it. Okay, actually, this is, I'll tell the simple part of the story. So I was in North Carolina and I was working and we were working and doing, um, it was a training, a long training, two full weeks separated by a month. And uh, they were, we, we were getting into race dynamics and it was a very, you know, it's the South in the States. So it's always a question, especially for community workers, but it was also right around, it was right at the, in, in that month in between the AME shooting happened. I don't know if you caught uh, the news of this when it was 2015, I think, when mm-hmm. a, a, uh, a radical person went into 
a black church and there were black mm -hmm. uh, ch mm -hmm. church leaders praying and he um, murdered all of them. And so this happened and, and it was, and it was, so it was part of our work. And, um, there was also an AME, a retired AME preacher in the group who knew, had known these people. So these are, and these are the kinds of things that happen, right? So the, and I, I don't, I'm sure in your life also, like sometimes the stakes just go up, mm -hmm. like the stakes are where they are, what you intended them. And then there's this whole other thing that happens and it happens at camps. It happens in after school. It happens all the time, but not every time. Mm -hmm. And so it happened this time and we went through an, quite an extraordinary process. And that's the long story that maybe I'll avoid right now. Cause I feel like I need to think it through how to tell mm -hmm. it, but they were watching me in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. And one really brilliant facilitator, Akua Adisa, very specifically, we went out to dinner that night and very specifically was like, listen, the way that you communicate, because I'm from Canada, okay, I'm, I'm raised to speak in a certain way. And when I think mm -hmm. I'm being direct, mm -hmm. um, that's not necessarily direct to other people, right? The, mm -hmm. these, these things are so cultural. Mm -hmm. And Ikua, they said, like, you need to be way more direct. You need to speak your truth and the truth of the group. Because, the, you know, the tension that had started to come up, there were comments being made that were um, culturally um, very hot. And so Ikua said to me, like, the way that you're communicating isn't sufficient for what's about to happen here. Ikua knew the group dynamic from living and working in this place and being from Atlanta and knowing the context and had seen me working for a week already in these long, you know, long training days and was like, yeah, okay. You're, it's not that you're not truth telling. It's that you're not telling us you're not being yeah, direct. And, and for me, that meant edging into aggression. Mm. What I would consider regression, right? Would, what would be read as being honest and direct. Mm -hmm. And so having to find that in myself mm -hmm. and, and not as an act, but as mm. solidarity mm -hmm. and also as honesty and authenticity. Mm. So that's, yeah, that really comes to mind of, of when the group is watching you and actually needing something different that I would yeah. never have been able to see from my cultural context. Mm -hmm. I mean, God, sure. you saw me working in India. It was happening all the time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Uh, and I think it doesn't matter how much facilitation one learns as a skill. Uh, working with different contexts, uh, working with different demographics, uh, bringing in a certain lens of cultural sensitivity, as well as deep respect and honor for those communities, I think there's just never a time when one can say, I'm done learning this. You know, there's just never a time. As a facilitator, you can always be caught by surprise and shock sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I think that's such an ongoing process of you know, learning and unlearning and relearning, all of that. Um, there's just so many things in my head, but there's one question that I want to ask you is um, in your career, have you ever been burnt out? And you've already answered that at some point during your conversation. And how how does a facilitator take care of themselves? And you know, also let's engage with why 
you know, it feels like a weird question that we are still asking why take care of oneself. But the truth is that we do live in a world that, you know, rewards productivity, rewards uh, performance and rewards outputs and outcomes. So let's, if we could engage with that question a little bit, is facilitator burnout real? If yes, how does it show up in one's work? Like what are the signs that you recognize? Oh, I think I'm burnt out. And then how do you take care of yourself? It's a really good question. Something that I really struggle with. I mean, yes, I think it's very real. I feel like I saw it in myself. I feel like I saw it in Charlie. I feel like I've seen it in many, many facilitators. I feel like I saw it in Vishal. I I feel like we see this burnout. Um, I think it happens. I have a, a, a sense of a because, which is not just overwork. I think there isn't, there's something in the NGO culture Mm-hmm. that I really resent, I have to say, mm-hmm. and I, I've seen it global. I've seen it so many places. Not, not that I've been everywhere in the world, but I've seen it everywhere I've gone, which is where work is, you work until you're done. You work until, and the work is never done, and it's like you're just wringing, you're wringing out everything the worker has. Mm-hmm. And, now, and then when you're doing that with leadership, it's like that trickles down. So mm. it's like, if I'm working this hard, you're working this hard. And, and then when you're working and when you're a contractor and you're working in multiple different organizations, nobody's noticing what's happening with you, <laughs> you know, so con- yeah. and most facilitators are contract people. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as the director of training at Pi, I was still a contract person. Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect, which is simple overwork and not, and not, um, valuing not actually valuing the work and actually in a way I would say valuing money in a way that's unconscious and then, and then extracting that value from the human. So I have a, I, I have a whole, a whole resentment reserved mm-hmm. for that particular kind of capitalism mm-hmm. that is in the, in the helping professions and in particular in community work and in particular with facilitation. But I also think there's something else that burns us out and I would you might begin by thinking of it as compassion fatigue, but it has to do with this openness. Mm-hmm. So there's a, spe- you know, it's a very specific kind of burnout, which comes from training yourself to receive mm-hmm. everything. Oh yeah. And not, and, and like erasing your own boundaries in order to do the work in a good way. And, and that, that, that is something that I've really been trying to, like, you know, I was trained early on to, to um, by Hanif Fazal, incredible trainer on the West Coast in the States, um, to really compare, I'm, I doubt he does this anymore. I think we were all in a very different state of mind 20 years ago, but to really compartmentalize my own needs and to just never tell, like, as far as the group is concerned, I didn't have any needs. Mm. I was never tired. His phrase was out love them and outlast them. Mm. Now that's beautiful. It's beautiful to be that person, but it's, but you, you can't do it all the time and you can't work a nine to five like that. You know, I can only facilitate a couple of days a week. That's it. And as I age, I have less, you know? Mm. So there's a kind of a burnout that comes from out loving and outlasting from overgiving. Uh, and then, you know, yesterday with Emily, we were also talking about like, when am I, when am I moving into a space of being so 
caring that it's too much. I'm over-functioning. They don't even need me to care this much. Mm-hmm. And when can I back up a little and start reserving? And, and Peggy, Peggy Taylor used to say, rest in the moment. Like, mm-hmm. find that stillness. I don't have to always be fully giving energy. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's their turn. And so I think that, so these, these are the two places I think the burnout's happening. One is it's systemic and it has to do with labor and the way that labor is actualized and that NGOs are leveraged into capitalist systems. But then I also think there's an aspect of the work itself, which is about, it's a kind of a feminization, if I can use that word, where it's like overgiving and you don't have to operate that way. Um, and the signs for me were always, I think it's different for everybody. But for me, the signs were always, I would get start to get very irritable, very yeah. impatient, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and then because I didn't heed those signs, very sick, you know, very physically, it really took a huge, being on the road for those 10 years took a huge physical toll that I'm, the pandemic, oddly and ironically and paradoxically have helped me heal physically. Absolutely. I hear you 100%. And in fact, you know, uh, it's interesting, the, the, the pattern that you drew, which is a very systemic pattern that, that is take out everything that this consultant or this contractor has. It's also because one, uh, thinking time is never tangible, right? Uh, and, and facilitation is so much thinking and dreaming time, right? But that's never in a contract. The contract just says draft one by this date and draft two by this date. But thinking time and dreaming time, which can significantly affect the quality of the design and the experience, can never be quantified, can never be put in numbers, cannot be put in a contract. Right? Uh, I think that's that's definitely one part. I I also feel that in you know in the nonprofit world. One of the other things is, you know, one is this culture of performance and therefore everybody's performing. But I also feel somewhere, uh, something that I feel, you know, uh, in my experience, nonprofit organizations uh, do very badly on is um, recognizing that as uh, workers in the nonprofit sector, we are actually every day solving really complex problems in the world. And it can get intellectually, emotionally, and physically very tiring. Having, but we don't recognize that. And there's a lot of guilt attached to the idea of self-care. And you know, a lot of guilt attached to, but I'm serving the world. And you know, self-care is uh, for people with privileges. And I guess maybe to, you know, it is. But at what point does an organization take responsibility for its people and for their well-being? fully recognizing that if they are not happy, they can't contribute good things to the organization, right? So I think that there's that part, which is riddled with guilt that, oh, but I work in the nonprofit sector and I must consistently serve people in communities around me. How can I talk about stepping back and taking care of myself? And um, one of my, my challenges as somebody in the facilitation career is, I'm a very, very, one is I'm a very introverted person. So my, my way of recovery is to isolate myself. But when you're facilitating, there is no isolating yourself because people are always around you, right? Um, and it took me a long time to, 
for example, announce this is the end of my day and I'm, I'm just returning to my room and not feel the need to socially hang out, to, you know, post dinner and spend time talking or, you know, in some situations, even having a drink and not feel the time, you know, the need or the obligation for it. And fully know that your team or your uh, your client will understand that this is your time to switch off. You could be doing whatever you want to do in your room. That's different, right? Um, and then that leads me to that leads me to a question. As a facilitator, uh, and and in, in and for me, how does burnout show up? For me, my burnout shows up in a way that every design will look pretty much the same. You know, because I've stopped thinking, I've stopped innovating, I've stopped challenging yeah. myself. Yeah. So for me, yes. burnout shows up as it's pretty much the same design, the same set of tools and activities that I, I might keep repeating. And I've done that for almost three years. Uh, the good thing is I got really good at those activities. Sure. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but the bad thing is that, you know, there's a, such a danger, it's such a risk because we are in such creative careers that you're not experimenting, you're not innovating, you're not trying out new things. So then that leads me to a question that, as a facilitator, specifically because, like you said, most facilitators are contractors in, in even in India. Okay? Uh, as a contractor, one is, you know, this, this urge of let me just take up the work that's coming my way. So how does one say no, right? Because it has to be financially sustainable and things like that. The other is sometimes because of cultural social blocks, like the need to be polite, the need to or not being able to be straightforward or things like that. How does a facilitator, especially as a consultant facilitator, draw boundaries with one's clients? And is it even possible? This is such a good question. I feel like this is my learning edge right now. And especially having left Pi because, because we were so family, I could draw the boundaries at a very personal level. And I could even be, there was even space for me to be angry and to feel, you know, because I, they had known me since I was 20 and I left when I was 41. So inside of that, there was something. But when you sent me the list of questions, there was like, what was a mistake that you've made? And just recently, I, I definitely can't name the employer, but I just recently had a gig where I, I should have cut it off as soon as I realized what was going on inside the organization and that the, the things that I had set in place for myself to keep my boundaries and to, and to keep my team and myself healthy had fallen away. And the, uh, the, uh, the aggression in the organization was coming towards me in particular. And it was very personal, but it wasn't about me. It was coming towards me in a personal way, but it wasn't about me. And I needed to stop it. And it caused a lot of harm, um, both with my team and personally, but also it, it really invaded the work, right? I wasn't able to deliver the work at the level that I wanted to because I was afraid. I had become afraid. And this is like, you know, this is this year. So it's after 20 years of facilitating all kinds of, and it's just like, Sometimes you're not the right person and sometimes they're not the right client and it's not the right moment. And you know, they invested heavily. It wasn't that they, it wasn't that they didn't want to, it was that the chemistry and the dynamic 
and the zoom aspect and all the, there were just like certain things that made it so that it was, it was, I don't like to use this word toxic. It wasn't that it was toxic. It was that it was untenable. And energy was leaking out of the system. And so everybody was exhausted. And in that exhaustion, becoming aggressive. And I didn't stop it. I, I completed the contract and dragged my team through the contract. And I have a lot of regret. I don't believe I, we were innovative in what we delivered. And I know those innovations I will use later, but at what cost? And I, and I don't believe we served them the way that I would have wanted to. I know that we did everything we could, but I believe that if I had said stop, then there could have been an internal reckoning mm-hmm. as to why, why, and I, we were the third consultant, why did yet another consultant leave? And instead, I didn't let it go. And I've really been trying to process and ask myself, why didn't I let it go? First of all, there's the ego aspect. Well, I'm a professional, I'm an expert, let me blah, 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 mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. so embarrassing that that's, but there it is. That was real. Like I can get through this, but then also I was afraid and my fear response was to freeze. So even though I was working, a part of me was frozen and not able to act. And then I think the third level really comes down to how was I trained in the work to overgive. Mm. And that I just, I haven't really learned good, like even with Pi, it was only once the boundary was so crossed because we were all overworking mm-hmm. in a very unhealthy way, I would say. And I don't think there's anybody at Pi that would argue with that. I think it's, I think that my impression is that that's something that's healing there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't, yeah, that's, the boundaries are very, it's very difficult, but like, if you can't, then the client can't, the participants can't, the group can't, and if they can't set boundaries, then how do you even know you're like, if they can't say no, then you can, you can't really ask for transformation, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it becomes manipulation. So the whole thing's this vicious cycle and you can hear it in my answer. It's something that I'm really struggling with. I don't, I wish I had a better answer for you. You know, mm-hmm. I wish, I wish that was something that I have, I had developed. Your answer is so authentic. And I think a lot of people who would listen to this, they will totally relate to it. I think my sense is also, you know, very early on in my career, I would, if things are not going well, I would just immediately tell myself something must be wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never said this relationship is not working. I'm not working for them. They are not working for me. Let's just wrap this up. Right? It took me a long time to get to a place like that. But I think it's important to know that it's possible to get into situations like that. And when one does get into a situation like that, uh, try, try and not make it about, you know, it, it's, it's, it's about me. And I've had that experience where, you know, I walked away from a client's staff meeting feeling so inadequate and mm. feeling like, ah, oh, something must be wrong with me. How will I ever survive this kind of profession? And you know, all this, all this thing that builds up. And in many ways, I also feel so much of it is also about who you are, right? Like how do you mm. respond to your facilitation career or facilitation spaces? For me, my reflection has been 
learning to hold space for myself because then I get better in holding space for others. That's that's one. The second is I also feel this, the, you know, that narrative that oh, oh, something must be wrong with me. Is that a narrative that I had because I'm a woman? You know, uh, because as a woman, I think I have said that to myself in many other places, right? So, so much of, so much of, that narrative is also so much of who you are outside the scope of facilitation. Um, so, but I think the important part is also learning to say no at, and at what point. And if you really ask me, it is now today at, at the brink of 40 that I have learned to say no on many aspects of my life, including facilitation. <laughs> and it has been such a gift. Um, Let's, let's, uh, you know, I, I would like us to also go back and have a conversation around, um, you spoke of this, something very important, which is because the client lives in a system, okay, uh, in many ways, they pass on everything that the system stands for, mm-hmm. right? including, the, yeah. including the values, including the mindset, including the culture. And uh, and then uh, you you use the word restriction on one's own imagination, right? What what does one do as a facilitator when you're caught in a in a moment like that? Uh, so it's it's not really bad, it's not really toxic, but you're in a situation where you find that there's a lot of restriction on one's imagination. Uh, and I'll, I'll I'll set the context of this, right? Uh, many years back, I used to have a client, whenever they used to give me a brief, the briefing was not so much around what they want out of the experience, but the briefing was always how to create that experience. It took me a while to catch that. And at, at one point, I finally stopped the conversation and I said, you tell me what you want. The how is what you're paying me for. You know, so, so, so I'll figure yeah. out the how, right? Uh, but it, of course, it took me a while to get there uh, and to be able to catch those moments where clients suddenly start, you know, uh, 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 wavering towards how you should do this. And they said, uh, you know, versus it's not so much about like why you should not listen to your client. Of course, you know, uh, a facilitator's primary job is listening. One of the reasons why it also causes us the burnout is because we are constantly listening. Right. Uh, what happens when you find yourself in a situation where you feel your imagination is restricted as a physician? Yeah, I think this has a lot to do with the consistency of my art practice and how strong that is at any given time. So as long as that muscle is very strong with me, my imagination will find a way. And I think the word my is very misused here, but creativity will come through if the channel is strong and healthy and clear. And so if I'm painting regularly and I'm writing regularly and I am and I'm dancing and singing and the, the vibratory, you know, um, channels are, he- are with me. And I've, and I've been, and this is why for me, I don't know how people facilitate without the arts. Mm. I've never even bothered to ask. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I don't care. You know, it's like, if you have your way, that's good. But for mm-hmm. me, they're married. Mm-hmm. One, they're one in the same thing. And it's another, it's just another art form as a multidisciplinary mm-hmm. artist. And so as long as I have those things working, 
it will find a way. I can feel as constrained and, you know, my ego, right? My small self can feel like, even oppressed, like, like the client doesn't hear me. They don't know me, but I can trust the group will take care of it. The environment will take care of it. The outcomes will take care of themselves. As long as I come in with an open heart and I do my work to the best of my capacity, imagination will take over this space. And that's also because my tools are very well trained in creative facilitation. So I know how to open the, I know how to invite the imagination into a space. Once you do that, it doesn't matter what the client wanted. What, what must happen will happen every single time. Now, then you sometimes have to figure that out afterwards. And, 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 and that's, I've actually never had a problem with that, to be honest. Like when the client wants something and the group does something else in a very authentic way, the client's usually happy. You know, because none of us can predict. Yeah. That's debatable. That's a, that's a debate for the time zone. Um, but when my creative practice isn't strong and that's, you know, that when I'm burning out, I'm on the road, I'm not taking care of myself. I don't have those outlets. That's when I get into like this, right? Uh, like you were saying, rote, I get into a rote mind. Um, participants are unhappy. Conflicts go, conflicts are not transformational. Um, and, and that, you know, I can't, that hap- that has happened to me a lot mm. that I haven't even using the exact same tools. I haven't actually opened the space. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a symptom mm. more than anything. Sure. You know? And so it's like, that's, that and it is an aspect of self care. It's an aspect of training. Oh, wow. Okay. I have a few more questions and, you know, I I want us to go back to a time in your career where you experienced a compelling moment in your facilitation career in a space that you held as a facilitator, um, where you witnessed the power of safe, creative, peer-supported environments. If you could recall a moment like that and describe it. There's so many. I don't even know where to where to start I think um (laughs) you know I don't even know what to pick Mm -hmm. um it's always well the first time someone fell asleep at the time zone Uh was an incredible moment was an incredible moment um, it's definitely built on, it's built on a, on a long legacy of what, what, how, what kind of risks can be taken in a safe space. But that was an, an insight for me. Um, the person regularly and, and really opened the space for other people to do the same sleep with the video on and the, and the mute off online. And, and just that, that kind of vulnerability and then like the ability to wake up and speak from the dreaming space. So sort of listening to the conversation and then wake up and speak. And I think that was really a testament to a style of facilitation um, that is, that is focused on not controlling anything and, and real deep prioritizing deep trust and, and, 
I know it's it can seem a bit almost silly, but as someone who spent my whole adult life in this work, to see that kind of safety among adult strangers is so moving. It's almost more so than the times I've seen, you know, I've seen people do incredible creative acts together. That's why I couldn't choose, right? It's like, God, I've seen people do unbelievable activism and creativity together in synchrony, coming into these group states that we're like, this was impossible before, you know, and we work our way through conflict to, to these incredible high level states. And even at youth camps, the things that can sometimes happen, but this sleeping was almost like the counterpoint and this realization that, that of the whole self, what's it like to really invite the whole self and to feel so safe that you're almost like a child again. And what, and the next part of that is what does the group get from that? So someone is sleeping and it's not considered insulting. It's not considered a lack of something. It's not, instead, it's like part of the study of time and in a very real, very uplifted way, the rest of the group, you know, we move into an intellectual understanding of that, but also the rest of the group becomes even more wholly present because, oh, if I can bring that extreme, I can bring my whole self. I can bring my whole cultural self. Okay. And you know, when we're doing anti-oppression work, just a couple of days ago, I was talking about this, like a lot of people, um, from marginalized communities will, f- you know, you go into a public space and you can bring only 5% of who you really are. You have to pass, you have to shift your code to the normal code, whatever that is. If it's your queerness or your race or your religion or whatever it is, your disabilities. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you have to hide everything and mask everything and bring this self. And so when this sleeping happens, uh, I really feel like that widened and that act, that act had to do with the space that had already been generated, that this is that safe of a space. And then when other people started to pick it up mm-hmm. and just cuddle themselves into their piddle, pillows and listen mm-hmm. and yet be present and to trust mm-hmm. presence is not, presence is not performance. Um, that I think that that this was a, you know I will always love the creative community model to the end of my days this that method is I you know I'm a lifelong supporter of in every way but this other thing that I've been discovering is um, is outside of that practice mm-hmm. and it's very very interesting to me yeah it's very interesting because. <clears throat> You know, uh, some of the things that I need a high degree of safety as an individual, right? It's not, for example, to stand in a stage to face 500 people. It's actually these kind of acts to be able to sleep, to be able to dance uh, in front of people, uh, to be able to um, uh, eat in public, actually. Yes. You know, and, and for me, these are the kind of activities that require a high degree of safety around me. But uh, I, I can do many other things, like, you know, uh, stand on a stage, speak to 500 people and things like that. But it's the, uh, it's the, it's the things that one doesn't think. The intimacies. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. it's, it's interesting, very fascinating. And I'm also thinking that how many teachers actually take offense when a child actually sleeps in their classroom. Yes. Right. 
But if you were to just turn that around, how powerful and what a great relationship one can build uh, with one's, uh, whether it's a student, whether it's, you know, one's group, it's, uh, it's kind of very amazing. It has, um, it's related to outcome driven, right? Because we, the time zone has goals for sure. You know, things are evolving. We're always tracking our own growth, but mm-hmm. not uh, it predictively. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there isn't a standardized test at the end of it. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I hear you on that. Um, I have one more question for you, Nadia, which is, if you were to list down five steps to becoming a creative facilitator, what would those five steps look like? Have a creative arts practice that's consistent and that challenges you into the unknown. So if you're already good at something, it's not the, it's not the one, right? Mm-hmm. It's like something that put, always face the abyss, always face the unknown and engage that and become its friend. Uh, that's the, I think that's very important. Two, I would say really understand your body as your, as your instrument um, in all of its aspects and developing that, that self, that self, I want to call it self-knowledge, but it's not a knowledge. It's like a, it is an intimacy and to, to learn to read your inner state and trust it. Um, and not, not, not make it true, but trust that there's, that the intuitive self is not magic. It's the body. Um, I would say find community, friends, colleagues who will tell you the truth about your work and debrief you and who will debrief you and debrief every single thing you do and process it and find people who will not just say yes to you and who will tell you when your work is bullshit. And, and, and then for, if your work work is bullshit, just, that's okay. (laughs) That, you know, we learn, we have to learn by failing in this work. This isn't an academic pursuit. This is a trade and you, you, you learn it. It's a, you learn it that way through apprenticeship. And, um, and then lastly, I guess I would say always let the kids teach you. I mean, I know some people work with adults and so I guess I suppose let the client teach you in that sense. But for me, those are the greatest teachers. They, they will. And if you get a chance to work with teenagers, find a way to work with teenagers because if you want someone who will tell you when your work is not good, <laughs> that's what will tell you. And they will tell you in a very honest and a very, in, in a very embodied way, this doesn't work. And that's how you get better. And so I guess those would be my five tips. Wow. That is amazing. That is amazing. And as a last question uh, for this. Wait, wait, wait. We got to talk about Tosi a little <laughs> yes, bit. Yes. Right? That, that is, that okay. is where I'm coming. So. I want everyone to know that Nadia actually uh, started something called Toolsy and she also has her own podcast. So Nadia, tell us a little bit about both of them and how do we find them? Of course, we'll we'll find a way to link all of this, uh, but tell us a little bit more. Thanks. Thank you. Well, Toolsy is, um, it's named after the plant, Toolsy. And that's, and so that, that plant is an adaptogen. And an adaptogen goes into the body and helps relieve stress. Where, And so holy basil, tulsi, is this a powerful plant, but it's also a subtle and forgiving and creative plant whose, 
whose flower is so small and this like delicate purple flower and you and to me it has so much to do with what a facilitator does you're not the big flashy rose it's the subtle thing that helps to relieve stress you know and so it's an adaptogen and that's what we do we go into groups and we find that balancing point and we adapt so the podcast is called adaptogen and I'm basically doing what you're doing, which is so exciting to me. I'm really hoping we can find, I don't know yet exactly what it is, but I'm hoping there's a way that these things just like really support each other. Um, I'm basically interviewing all the incredible facilitators I know around the world. And they're number in the hundreds. Like my list is so long. <laughs> there are just, I've met so many unbelievable frontline workers. And, and, that, and the podcast is meant to uncover their niche. Because facilitation lives in old, like I've got, you know, my Jamaican friend, Andre, who's going to talk about sports facilitation. And then I've got my friend, Cal Christie, who does like high level kidnapping negotiations. These are all facilitators, right? So I want to like really stretch and find the niche and find the, the goal that we can share inside of that. Tulsi itself. So the podcast is part of Tulsi and Tulsi is where... I am recording the legacy of all the training I've had in all the learning I've done over the last 21 years and putting it into an app form so that people, I, I feel like there's a gap. So there's train, there's learning on the ground, which I think is hundred percent the most important way. Then there's training. And as a longtime trainer, I do believe in group trainings, but it has a couple of specific problems Two in particular. One is you tend to train with other facilitators. So the question always comes up, will this work with my group, <laughs> right? Because you guys are already baked in and, and you're saying yes, but my kids won't say yes. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that it's very, I, you know, you forget your training. And so what I want to do is, you know, Tulsi is just like these little five minute videos, two minute videos that remind you that you can watch on a break. You're like, what's the conflict model again? What's the, what's the arc of transformation? How do you deliver a goal? And it's just there five minutes. You can watch it. And it will also have a set of worksheets. So right now I'm in early adopter stage. So everybody who's joining me is it's a low fee um, and a big free section. And I just want everybody in and then uh, help me develop it by asking questions and everything. And then once it's all built out, then I'll raise the price point because it's going to fund the next part of the time zone. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there are these little videos and then there's this whole um, collection of worksheets that will, and my intention with this is that through self-reflection is how I found my own style. It's actually not through training and it's not in the group work. My own, mm -hmm. my style came from my introversion, my introvision, from looking in my inside of my heart. My 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 delivery came from the group work. But the real choices I make and who I am, that comes from a much more meditative space. So I want these worksheets for people to everybody to be able to find and center and have a document of their own style to return to. And then lastly it's a collection of um all of my favorite activities that I've spent years and years testing. And so the, the list of the activities themselves is free, but my explanations of how you adjust them for accessibility and all those kinds of things are um, part of the kind of paid section of it. Mm 
And I'm cross your fingers. I'm I'm hoping I'm on the verge of being able to find scholarships for anyone who needs them. But wow. that hasn't. It's only been. It's only started two and a half weeks ago. Like we really are starting at the same time here, Shalini. It's really amazing. <laughs> it's it's like magic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. amazing. I, yeah, absolutely, Tulsi. That's such an interesting name. I would have never guessed it's actually coming from Tulsi. Because yes. I, I really thought, okay, it's about tools and that's why, but now I totally see it. And, uh, I, I, and I completely agree with you, Navi. I think people like you and me are just responding to something. There's a shift that's happening in the facilitation world. And I think we're just responding to that, you know. Uh, yeah. And there's so much uh, of it for us, like for as an individual, but there's so much for the community. And I think we can never have enough of this. So... I'm definitely getting on Toolsy very soon. Um, and I'm super excited about everything that you're setting out to do. I think this first episode is so much aligned to the very idea of doing, being, and doing. Uh, because you just touched upon so many aspects of facilitation. We actually spoke very little about how to get trained and where to find tools and where to find resources. Not to say that's not important, it's super important. But in so much, you know, you I feel for me, you expanded the very imagination of a facilitator and a facilitator's work. And uh, absolutely, you know, I think I somewhere deep down in my heart, I knew that this is the kind of conversation we are about to have. So thank you so much for being the first one on Doing Being Doing. And uh, there's a big possibility that we might have another conversation at some point. Uh, uh, I specifically want to engage with the, in, the you know, the uh, arc of design uh, that you spoke about. And I want to engage with that. And also, how does one balance authenticity and efficiency? So, Oh, those are two great questions. Yes, we should definitely do it. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, please, uh, we, we will be linking all, all of what Nadia spoke about, uh, you know, on our um Instagram page as well as on YouTube's description so you know how to find uh, both the podcast as well as Tulsi. Nadia, thank you so much for your love, for your abundance and everything that you have brought to me, uh, you know, at so many different levels and being part of this first episode. Thank you so much. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I wish you all the best with this project. I can't wait to, I'm going to be following it very closely. Thank you so much.